completing our series in Leviticus. Uh, if you recall, the last holiday, uh, we had the first three in our series of six. And for this and the next following two weeks, we will uh, complete our series in Leviticus in this holiday time. So before we look further at this passage, let me pray for us. Indeed, Lord, as we have just sung, we do pray. Uh, speak, O Lord, uh, through your word to us today. Uh, may these Old Testament passages, which in some ways may appear quite obscure to us, uh, may their relevance uh, come home with fresh clarity uh, as we reflect on them together. May your Spirit help us to that end, uh, and may they move us to understand more of deeply what you've done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it is said that the triple jump is basically a hop, a skip, and a jump. Uh, the columnist Guy Browning once wrote that falling in love is a bit like the triple jump. Uh, the even pace of life is suddenly disrupted by a sudden upward movement, and then you skip with happiness before leaping into the relationship sandpit. Well, it struck me that reading Leviticus has certain similarities. Uh, the reader launches off with great energy into the first chapters on sacrifice, which point forward to, of course, Christ's death. Uh, then you skip with delight on reaching some narrative, uh, albeit the premature death of the first priests. But then in chapters 11 to 16, you'll find yourself leaping into the sandpit, the sandpit of ritual regulations, the relevance of which for us today is often quite obscure. Uh, here's an example. Uh, chapter 11, verse 22. Uh, there are, however, some winged creatures that walk on all fours that you may eat. Of these you may eat any kind of locust, calid, cricket, or grasshopper. Well, the last time I checked at Woolies, they simply didn't stop uh, locusts or grasshoppers unless I was looking in the wrong aisle. So what is the purpose of Leviticus, these chapters in Leviticus, for us today? Well, our working assumption in this whole series is twofold. Firstly, uh, Leviticus is part of God's Word, and God doesn't waffle. If it's there, it's, it has some importance for us, and it teaches us something important. And the second premise is that Leviticus is foundational to our understanding of the New Testament. So it is well worth our while taking time in this holy time to reflect on this book of Leviticus. Now then, the thread running through chapters 11 to 16 is the concept of uncleanness. Uncleanness. And understanding this key biblical idea is really important. It's important if we're going to relate rightly to God. And it's also going to be closely related to what we will look at together next week, because next week we'll be looking at the whole topic of holiness. Well, you'll see from your outline, we're going to explore three things this morning. Firstly, the nature of uncleanness, what it is. Uh, secondly, the consequences of uncleanness, uh, why it matters. And thirdly, the removal of uncleanness, how we get clean. So firstly then, uh, the nature of uncleanness. What is it and what does it involve? Well, in chapter 10, verse 10, the Lord tells the priests this. You must distinguish between the holy and the common, 
between the unclean and the clean. And the chapters that follow spell out what uncleanness involved in four different areas. Uh, Firstly, food. Uh, Secondly, childbirth. Uh, Thirdly, uh, skin diseases and fungal infections. And fourthly, bodily discharges. So let's look at each of them in turn. Firstly, food. Uh, Chapter 11 gives instructions about what the Israelites were and weren't allowed to eat. Animals were divided into two categories, either clean or unclean. And you could only eat the clean ones. Now, clean animals were not those that were good on their personal hygiene. Uh, Certain types of animals were unclean regardless of how much or how little mud they had on them. So you could eat fish that had scales and fins, but not fish without scales or fins. Why not? I don't know if you knew this, but uh, jellied eel is a British speciality. Next time you're in the UK, uh, maybe try it out, or next time you come around to my house, put in a special request if we're giving you a meal. Why prohibit such delicacies? At the end of chapter 11, verse 44, God says this, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself and be holy because I am holy. The food laws were a way that God's Old Testament people were to express their holiness. What on earth have eels got to do with holiness? Well, holiness was symbolized by wholeness. And wholeness meant that you conformed to the category to which you belonged. So the animals in this chapter are divided into categories. Those that inhabit land, those that live in the sea, and those that live in the air. And each sphere has a particular mode of motion associated with it. So, for example, uh, birds have two wings with which to fly and two feet for walking. Uh, Fish have fins and scales with which to swim. Land animals have hooves to run with. And so you see, the clean animals were those that conformed to these standard pure types, if you like, the normal template. Animals that didn't conform to the categories, animals that confused these boundaries, were classed as unclean. It was all symbolic because they symbolized disorder rather than wholeness. So the point is, the clean animals symbolized the holiness and the wholeness that was to mark God's people. So eating only clean animals was a daily reminder that you had been set apart for God. And whereas if you ate unclean animals or if you even touched a dead unclean animal... Uh, you became unclean. That was the first category, uh, food. Uh, Moving more quickly, uh, the second category was childbirth. That was all explained in chapter 12, all about how a woman becomes unclean through childbirth because of the flow of blood. Third category uh, is in chapters 13 to 14. Uh, It deals with various types of skin diseases that could afflict people and fungal infections that could infect garments or other materials. 
In both cases, the surface of the skin or the garment was disfigured. It was no longer whole. Uh, It was made to flake or to peel. And so that made it classed as unclean. Chapter 15 is all about uh, a range of bodily discharges that make men or women unclean, in some way uh, unwholesome. In all these different ways, uh, you became unclean. So what was the point? Well, uh, the kids' talk this morning uh, was to help us to start to get into the headspace of what's going on in Leviticus. Because the point is, for example, to our kids, how do you teach a six-year-old the lesson which we were trying to teach today, that there's sin in your heart? Well, uh, it's a, probably an abstract concept to a kid. So you need something tangible to get it across. Do you think Willie the Worm was tangible enough for them? Uh, do you think they'll ever forget Willie the Worm? Do you think they'll ever eat, a, eat another apple? They'll at least cut it in half first to check. Well, uh, that was the whole point. It was something visual which explained and brought home an abstract concept. And so it was with these ritual regulations. If you like, they were God's apple to his people. And through them, God was giving a kid's church lesson to his people. Uh, He was using what was visible to teach them about something which was invisible. Can you see sin in your hearts? Of course you can't, but you can spot leprosy on somebody's face. You can see fungus on a wall. And these were visible ways that people became ritually unclean, but they were reminded of the invisible sin in their hearts. This whole teaching of God of his people, uh, this kid's church lesson for his people, went on for several hundred years. It continued until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But with Jesus' arrival, the visual aid had served its purpose. And now the kids' church teaching was over. But unfortunately, some people in Jesus' day wanted the kids' church lesson to keep going. They had completely missed the point of the lesson. Uh, We meet some of them in Mark chapter 7. Uh, These were Pharisees who were complaining that Jesus' disciples were not following all the rules and rituals and regulations. And Jesus explains this to them in Mark 7, verse 15 onwards. He says this, Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him, speaking of unclean or unclean foods, Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. Uh, Verse 21. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. So you see, ultimately, you didn't become unclean through eating the wrong type of food or having a skin disease. They were just visual aids. What makes us unclean is the sin 
in our hearts, the sin that comes from within. What leprosy does to your face, sin does to your heart. It disfigures it. Uh, the human heart, the inner person we know, is an idol factory. It's a source of constant pollution, spiritual pollution. It's what makes us unclean in God's sight and in his presence. Uh, the problem is not skin deep. It is deep within us. Uh, you may have heard the term carbon footprint. It is a current buzzword. Uh, your carbon footprint, apparently, is a measure of the impact your activities have on the environment in terms of the amount of greenhouse gases uh, you produce, and it's measured in units of carbon dioxide. Well, I don't know if you got up this morning asking that question, how big is my carbon footprint? But actually, uh, if we would have the pressure groups uh, believe, uh, convince us, it's a question we should be lying awake at night worrying about. What is our carbon footprint? Well, how many people are as concerned about their spiritual carbon footprint? How much spiritual uncleanness is coming out of you and me each day into the atmosphere of our lives? But why is being spiritually unclean such a problem? What are the consequences? Well, we all know what is happening to the planet because of our CO2 emissions, but what about those other emissions from our heart? What damage do they do? And why should we be concerned about them? So that brings us secondly to our second area we're going to think about, the consequences of uncleanness. Chapters 11 to 16 show us why uncleanness matters in 3D, or should I say 3Ds, uh, distance, death, and dwelling. So the first is distance. One of the consequences of ritual uncleanness was it put distance between you and God. It separates you from God. So in chapter 12, verse 4, the command is given regarding a woman who was unclean after childbirth. It says this. Then the woman must wait 33 days to be purified from her bleeding. She must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. She could not go to the sanctuary during that period of her uncleanness. She could not draw near to God at the tent of meeting. She had to stay away. It was even more serious if you had the disease of leprosy. Chapter 13, verse 46. As long as he, the leper, has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. It was a terrible fate. I've got a diagram to help us visualize the situation for the Israelites' camp. There we go. Uh, the white circle represents uh, the camp, and that was to be kept ritually clean. And yet the leper was banished outside the camp. 
that the leper had to live in the area demarked as black. The leper was cut off from God's people and cut off from God. He was distanced from the place where God dwelt amongst his people. So you see, you couldn't draw near to God at the tent of meeting, which is there in the middle, the rectangle in the center. The fate of the leper was a replay of the expulsion from the Garden of Eden. And this physical separation from God because of uncleanness pictured the spiritual separation that sin causes between us and God. The uncleanness that comes out of the heart puts distance between us and God. You recall those familiar words from the prophet Isaiah in 59 verse 2. Uh, but your iniquities, your sins have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Do you feel that God is distant? Uh, you may be somebody to whom the Christian claims are new. Perhaps you have felt in your experience the reality of what we are talking about. Maybe you know what it's like for God to feel remote. This tells us why he is remote. It is because of your spiritual uncleanness that comes from your heart. It separates you from a God who is holy and a God who is pure. But even those of us who are Christians may have experience of God feeling distant at times. Sometimes it's just due to our feelings going up and down because, of course, feelings are not a reliable spiritual indicator. But there can also be distance between us and God because our uncleanness is not being dealt with. And maybe you've experienced this, but uh, sometimes in a relationship, maybe you've said or done something, and you experience a relational distance, a frostiness until things are resolved. I remember in my uh, early friendship with Tracy, uh, we were getting along pretty well. I'd see her most weeks, and we'd usually meet up, and it'd be quite cordial and warm, and we'd chat away. And uh, then after a while, I noticed there was a bit of frostiness. Uh, her responses to me were quite curt and short. And uh, you know, it took me a few weeks to think that something was wrong, but my male intuition was starting to antenna were tweaking. And you know, I was thinking, why doesn't she want to do things anymore? You know, do you want to go out for a drink? No. Uh, how about going to the pokies? No. So I was running out of ideas and suddenly thought, well, maybe I said I'd done something which has offended her. So I finally said to her after about a month and a half, uh, is there something I've said or done which has offended you? I mean, she's a bit gruff at first. I said, come on, tell me. She says, well, it was your comment about eight weeks ago about my coat. I said, what did I say about your coat? She said, it looked like an old rug. I said, did I? Oh, I am sorry. It did, actually, and she hasn't still got it, so I'm quite pleased. But sometimes, you know, I apologise, and fortunately the problem and the rift was resolved, and here we are today, uh, four children later, so yes, thank you. But that can happen in our relationships. And likewise, uh, if there are things unresolved in our relationship with God, distance can come about. We need to be 
resolving that. So, the first thing, a distance. The second consequence was death. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 31. At the end of these regulations about bodily discharges, we read this warning. You must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean, so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place, which is among them. Uh, To draw near to God when you were unclean was to sign your own death warrant. And of course, in chapter 16, some of the sons of Aaron found that. But such divine judgment in Israel pictured the spiritual eternal death penalty that God's holy response to sin calls for, for all people. Romans 6 verse 23 reminds us, of course, for the wages of sin is death. Spiritual uncleanness is a matter of life or death, eternal death. So that was the second D. The third D is dwelling. Uncleanness defiles God's dwelling place. Look again at chapter 15 verse 31. You must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean, so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place, which is among them. Carbon emissions do pollute the atmosphere and the damage, they do damage the environment, but God taught his Old Testament people that their uncleanness polluted his atmosphere, the tent of meeting in the middle of the camp in which he dwelt. Their spiritual pollution made it an unfit place for a holy God to live. A holy God couldn't keep living among them in a place that was unclean. So you see, their uncleanness was a threat to the very existence of God amongst his people. Now, I can't tell you how happy I am when I got to the manse when we first moved in to find that the carpets are speckled beige in colour. To my mind, speckled beige is the perfect colour for carpets. So thank you, Com, for choosing that. Because speckled beige doesn't show dirt. And with kids, that is great news. My worst nightmare is a deep, shagpile, white carpet. If we had that in the manse, I wouldn't even let my kids through the door. Our uncleanness makes God's house dirty, and God won't stand for it. It's as if God has deep shagpile white carpet throughout, and we are filthy, muddy with sin. And in his holy purity, he can't let us come anywhere near him. So there we have it, the three problems. This 3D perspective tells us that our uncleanness is a very, very big deal. It's a much bigger problem than our carbon footprint. But the final question is, what can be done about it? We know how to deal with our carbon footprint, but how do you deal with a dirty heart? So finally, the third area we're going to think about the removal of uncleanness, how we get clean. 
uh, one of the rituals which God ordained for dealing with uncleanness in the Old Testament was this, washing, washing. So in chapter 11, verse 25, if you touch the carcass of an unclean animal, uh, you became unclean and you had to wash your clothes. In chapter 11, verse 15, 58, if a garment had been diseased once the disease had disappeared, the garments had to be washed twice to become ritually clean again. If a leper had recovered from his disease, he had to wash his clothes and bathe himself with water before he could be readmitted to the camp. But washing your body or washing your clothes with water could never, of course, make your heart clean. Uh, even the great King David realized that. In Psalm 51, verse 2, after his sin with Bathsheba, he wrote this. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they didn't get this at all. Uh, in Mark 7, we see them still preoccupied with washing hands and washing cups and washing pots as if they could be clean before God by doing that. And Jesus says, Jesus says to them, guys, these were just visual aids. These were just the kids' church lesson. Something visual to help you appreciate the deeper invisible problem. Guys, Jesus was saying, this ritual washing can't deal with the problem of sin in your heart. So what can provide that inner cleansing? Well, the New Testament letter of Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 9 to 10, says this about these Old Testament regulations. Gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. And that time of reformation has now come. It's come, of course, with the coming of the Lord Jesus. Now, 1 John 1 verse 7, the blood of Jesus has purified us from all sin. So, uh, it may seem a bit surreal to say this, but we don't wash in water anymore. We wash in blood. That seems paradoxical. Uh, how can blood make us clean? It's a striking metaphor, of course, used to describe how the death of Jesus cleanses us from our sin. Uh, the blood of Jesus reaches the part that water can never reach. Water is just external. The blood of Jesus cleanses the heart, as we sung in our second song today. The blood of Jesus cleanses the heart, and it cleanses the conscience. I remember when I was um, traveling back through Thailand, uh, when I was working in Indonesia in the mid-early uh, 2000s, and uh, I went to a mosque one day, I was standing outside, and the guy, he, he actually invited me to come in. So I was quite interested to go in to find out more about uh, the Muslim religion. And one of the things he showed me was uh, the area 
uh, where the Muslims would wash before they went in to have their time of prayer. And there is an elaborate ceremony that every Muslim goes through before uh, they go to pray, uh, washing the various parts of the body. It was quite striking, of course, to see how committed they were to this, and it resonated with me as I thought about this whole concept of cleanness. Uh, We do have washing in the Bible, uh, but it is just merely a ritual which points to a deeper need, the washing of the heart. And of course, the blood of Jesus is the one that does that. The external ritual can never bridge the gap between us and a holy God. And that is the tragedy for people who, like the Muslims, think that the ritual washing can cleanse them before a holy God. It cannot. So, the first thing is, the first way to be made clean is to be washed by Jesus' blood. Have you asked for him to wash you through his blood? It is a wonderful thing, of course, to be clean. We all know that. So the first area was washing. The second area is waiting. In the Old Testament, uh, getting clean involved a lot of waiting around. Uh, Of course, the Old Testament priest was powerless to heal. Uh, All he could do for a leper was to diagnose and then prescribe the periods of waiting. If you touched a dead carcass, you were made unclean for some hours until evening. If you had given birth, you were unclean for between 33 or 66 days. If you had a skin disease, you could be unclean for years outside the camp. All you could do if you were a leper was just hope and pray that it would eventually clear up. And all the priest could do was go through the rituals for readmission to the camp if and when the leprosy had been cleared up. In fact, at one level, the waiting lasted hundreds of years because, of course, there was no power in any of these Old Testament rituals. They were just visual aids. And as we read in Hebrews 9, verse 10, they were just external regulations awaiting the promised time. And the ministry of Jesus demonstrated with power and authority the time of waiting is now over. Uh, The Old Testament leper was banished outside the camp. But of course, Jesus seeks out lepers. The Old Testament priest could only wait for the leprosy to clear up. But we're told in Matthew 8 verse 2, a leper comes to Jesus. He kneels before him and he says, Lord... If you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus does something which shocked everyone present. He reached out and he touched the leper. That would, under normal circumstances, make Jesus unclean. But of course, it doesn't. It is the reverse. The unclean one becomes clean. The leper is healed Immediately. Mark 5. A woman who has a discharge of blood for 12 years. She has been richly unclean for 12 years. And yet she comes to Jesus in faith. She touches the hem of his garments. 
and immediately she is healed. So you see, we are incredibly privileged. You and I live in an incredible era of salvation history. Now that Jesus has come, our uncleanness can be dealt with instantly. There is no waiting around. There are no cues. The touch of Jesus brings instantaneous cleansing when we reach out to him in faith. We don't have to wait anymore. We just come to him. Uh, Do you feel unclean before God this morning? All you have to do is to reach out in faith to Jesus. Uh, 1 John 1 verse 9 is this precious promise to us Christian people. If we confess our sins, he that is God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's instant, it's powerful, and it's deep down cleansing. So how did he get clean? Uh, Washing, waiting. Uh, The final means of getting clean is what I'm calling goats. Uh, I couldn't find another word beginning with W and ending in ing, and so we'll have to do with goats. Okay. Uh, Chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. Uh, The tabernacle layout, let's look at it again on the screen. There it is. Uh, The yellow is the courtyard. Uh, The blue and the red are the tents of meeting. And only the priests go into that first section, the blue bit, but the second section, the red bit behind the curtain, this was the place where God dwelt. And it was out of bounds. Only one person could go in there, and he was the high priest. And he could only go in there once a year at the Day of Atonement, what Jewish people call Yom Kippur. And before he went in, he had to sacrifice a bull for his own sins. But at the heart of the ritual were two unfortunate goats. Uh, The priest would cast lots for them, and one was sent away into the wilderness, and the other goat was killed. Uh, What did it signify? Uh, Two things. Firstly, cleansing God's people. Look at uh, Leviticus 16, verses 21 to 22. Uh, He, that is Aaron, is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place. Imagine being there. Imagine watching as the sins of the nation, as your sins, were transferred onto the head of that goat. Imagine then watching as this poor animal was led away from the camp, out into the bleak wilderness, never again to return. Of course, the New Testament never refers to Jesus as the goat of God, but he is, of course, the Lamb of God. It's no doubt that he performs and he fulfills the ritual uh, that is visualized here. Isaiah 53, those familiar words say this. Surely... 
he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is the one who has taken our sins far away from us. Jesus is like the goat that was led outside the camp. But he was led outside the walls of Jerusalem. He was led outside the walls to bear our sin on the cross. Jesus became the scapegoat for you and for me. And what about the other goat? Because there were two goats. Uh, The high priest killed it. And he took its blood into the inner sanctuary and he sprinkled it on the cover of the ark. And the purpose of this sacrifice was not just to cleanse God's people, but to also cleanse God's house, his dwelling place. Uh, This way, God's house was made clean so God could continue to dwell amongst a sinful people. Look again at verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 16. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So you see, atonement was not only for the people, it was also for the place, the house of God. So what does this mean for us? Uh, What is the New Testament fulfillment of this Old Testament kids' church lesson for God's people being cleansed, and particularly God's house being cleansed? Uh, Firstly, uh, it applies to the spiritual realm. Going again to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23, it gives us a direct commentary on this. It says this, It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Uh, The earthly tabernacle, the tent of meeting inside the camp, it was just a copy. It was like a scale model of a greater spiritual reality. It was pointing to the spiritual realm in which God dwells. And Christ, through his death, has cleansed this realm of our polluting sins so that we can draw near to God. Now, not just the high priest once a year, but any of us at any time can walk into the very sanctuary of God. Of course, the curtain has been torn in two. But the cleansing wasn't just for the dwelling place. It was also for the people of God. 1 Peter 2 verse 5 says this. uh, You also, that is God's people, are like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Uh, This is the second way in which God dwells amongst his people. It's not just in the spiritual realm. It is also within his people. Uh, God's people together are pictured as a house, a temple, a building in which God dwells. And his presence amongst us is only possible because the house has been cleansed by the death of Christ. And there is a third way in which this dwelling uh, is fulfilled. 
as we trace the trajectory through to the New Testament. Because the dwelling place of God is not just in the spiritual realm. It's not just corporately in us people together as God's people. But it is also in each of us if we have faith in Jesus. It is in the individual believer. Acts 15 verse 9, Peter relates how God gave the Gentiles his Holy Spirit, having cleansed their hearts by faith. God can only come and dwell within us because the Holy Spirit has cleansed our hearts. But through faith in Christ, we are forgiven. Our hearts are made clean and the Spirit can dwell within. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? It's interesting, in 1 Corinthians, uh, that is used to encourage God's people to live lives which are morally pure. How can you do with your body morally impure things when God's pure spirit dwells within? So, let's just pull it all together then uh, as we conclude. What does this mean for those of us who are not yet people who have put their faith in Christ? Well, apparently every time I fly back to the UK and back, I'm responsible for dumping 4.5 tonnes of CO2 emissions into the environment. It's a wonder I get to sleep at night with that on my conscience. But there's good news. I don't know if you know this, but on carbonfootprint.com, they have a facility for offsetting your carbon footprint emissions. All I need to do is to go on to this website and to give $30 to reforestation of the Great Rift Valley in Kenya. And in so doing, I balance the books. Isn't that good news? Sometimes people think that they can balance the books. Sometimes people think they can offset their sins by doing good or by being religious. That they can offset the damage done by the pollution being pumped out of their hearts. But of course, Scripture tells us we can never do that. In fact, self-cleaning programs just make the situation worse. Uh, Jews do, celebrate, do still celebrate Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But tragically, the vast majority of Jews miss its true significance. There is only one way to clean yourself, and that is through trusting in the death of Christ. And if you've never done that, why not ask for that this morning? Because we don't have to wait. The cleansing is instantaneous the moment we ask. And for those of us who are Christians, we are reminded of this ongoing need of cleansing. When we take our communion, we are encouraged to examine our hearts, to see if there is anything wrong in our relationships with others, and to go and confess those and to put those things right, and to confess those to God. As Christians, we are encouraged to keep short accounts with God, to not allow relational distance to creep in. Where we have sinned, to confess that, to take time to reflect on our lives and to say, where have I sinned? And to prayerfully ask God to show us where there are things in our hearts where we have offended Him. Let us pray. 
Heavenly Father, uh, this whole theme of uncleanness reminds us of the deep problem within. Uh, thank you that these Old Testament rituals uh, do point to, and they are visual aids to that incredible clean that comes through the sending of your Son and his death on the cross. So we thank you for that, and we pray that each of us here would enjoy that ongoing cleansing that comes through faith in him, that we would keep short accounts with you, uh, that we would keep short accounts with each other, uh, confessing, acknowledging, asking forgiveness, and then having clear consciences before you. Amen.